Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 2, where we'll begin this time of our study, looking at the Word of God for a few minutes this morning. Judges chapter 2. Good to see you this morning. Appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you and to worship God with you. I hope it's been good for you the way it's been good for me uh, to sing these songs, to think together about these uh, ideas from Scripture, and to try to strengthen ourselves and encourage one another. And uh, it's been good for me to be here. What I want to do for our time this morning is to answer a specific question that I have been asked. And uh, I thought it was worth our time for the entirety of a sermon. I know we already answered questions in Q&A morning, but this was bigger than a Q&A queue. So the question that I want to answer this morning is, why do churches die? That's a question that seems to me to be particularly fitting, given the fact that last week we talked about the kingdom and how the kingdom has no end and the kingdom conquers and the kingdom has this upward trajectory. So the question is, why do we see churches die? Churches that lose steam and lose influence, even though they seem strong, and eventually they just start talking about disbanding. And so what we see is an empty building. The brother who asked me this question mentioned several congregations that have recently disbanded, and and it's personal for me, you know, when we drive back to my parents, which we did a couple of weeks ago for Thanksgiving, we drive past a building where for the first 10 years of my life, my family worshipped. And we drive past another building where while I was a senior in high school, I preached for a few months, first place I ever preached regularly. And the first one of those is now a funeral home, and the second one has been sold to another religious group. And so every time I go home, I pass by and I, I have that same question. I, I wonder, what, what happened there? Now let me be clear about my terms before we get started. When I talk about dying, I, I don't mean what we might sometimes think about meaning by the word die or by just the idea that there are empty buildings. You know... Sometimes people move away from certain areas. There are demographic shifts. Economics mean that there are more jobs in some places than others, and and some places just kind of die out as a town. That's not the same as a church dying. So when I talk about that this morning, I'm not talking about how sometimes, you know, a town gets, you know, society, economy kind of passes it by, and people move away. That's not really what I'm talking about. See, in that case, the church still exists in a sense. It's just moved to different places. In fact, you look at the New Testament, there are places where there are churches in the New Testament era, and if you go to those cities today, there's not even a town there. It's not that the church just died and the people continue to live there, it's that people moved away. There will always be churches where there are people. Churches cannot be where the people are not. So when I say die this morning, what I mean is a local church ceases to exist because the people who comprise it go back into the world. Or they stop attending. Or suddenly there's just no one left. Eventually things get so lean that something must be done. And when I use the word churches this morning, I want to be clear, I don't mean the church, the church of Jesus, the people of God, universal. What I mean is instead a local church. A local church that suddenly has this happen to it where we will realize that there is nothing happening there because people are no longer there. So, my contention this morning is that churches die because there has been a failure. 
And I want to look at three areas where that failure would exist. So let's talk about the first one. The first one is a failure to pass on the faith to the next generation. That's why we're in Judges 2. Look with me in Judges 2 and verse 7. Judges 2 and verse 7. It says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So there is a movement in this text from a generation that knew Jehovah and walked with him and believed in him to a generation that does not know him. And it is a small step from a generation that does not know Jehovah to a generation that does evil. You see that in verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Why did they do that? Because they did not know the Lord. So somehow this generation rises up without knowing Jehovah. And it's no surprise when a generation that doesn't know Jehovah doesn't serve Jehovah. But what I want to stress is that that was in spite of direct commands to that generation about how they needed to talk to and teach their children about Jehovah. Let me show you a couple of those. This is Deuteronomy 4 and verse 9. Only take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. And he talks about how Jehovah had appeared to them on the Mount Sinai, that they may teach their children so. Or this is Deuteronomy eleven nineteen. 19. You shall teach them to your children, talking about his commands, talking of them when you're sitting down in your house and when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. In fact, as if that's not clear enough, which, by the way, that's a lot of different places and times to teach, Moses gives specific Q&As that you need to have with your children. When they ask this, you say this. This is Exodus 12, verse 26. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. In fact, it's Joshua himself who says this when they cross over the Jordan as they're coming into the land. He says, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? You shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be the people of Israel forever. He says, even in their lifetime, hey, be sure you're telling your kids about what these stones mean. They're going to wonder, why do we make this big stone monument? And you say, here's what God did for us. In fact, this has always been God's plan for fathers. He says this back of Abraham, Genesis 18, 19. I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And so in every generation, you have that expectation that there will be leaders, particularly fathers, who are going to say, my children need to know what I have learned about God. If Abraham had not done that, what would have happened to his line in terms of their relationship with God? But because God chose him, specifically because he would teach his children in his household. So that message continues. And of course, in the New Testament, fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach them about Jesus. Now, how does that relate to churches? 
I believe it relates to churches the same way it relates to Israel. If we raise a generation of kids who don't know Jehovah, they will do evil. And what will become of that congregation? This is not hard. They're not going to serve the Lord, and they're certainly not going to want to meet together and worship the Lord. Now, that's going to happen, though, and I think we need to notice this because I think we've seen it in our lifetimes. That's going to happen in fits and starts. It's going to look like this. It's going to look like ignorance of God that crops up in different times in different ways. It may be that parents are not interested in talking about these things at home with their children. It may be that parents just rely on the Bible classes to do all the teaching. That everything that our children need to know about God, they're going to learn from a 30-minute or 45-minute, or in this case, like a two-hour sermon on Sunday morning. That as if that's going to be sufficient for their training. It may be that there are questions that children have that parents are unwilling or unable to address. Or... It might happen as kids rebel and want to experience sin. And other influences convince them that what their parents said to them and tried to live before them is just silly or antiquated or untrue. And so they begin to say, you know what, I don't want to know the Lord, even though I know some things about him. It might happen because kids are bored. Bored with God, bored with the Bible, and they don't want to hear it. They might even have parents who are bored with it. And so, that next generation takes the indifference of one generation and they run with it. If you don't care, I sure don't care, but I don't want to read it, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to study it, it's boring. But somewhere along the way, if that handoff from one generation to the next doesn't happen, churches are going to die over time. The second thing I want to say, churches die because of the failure to teach the lost. The reason New Testament churches thrived is because they were converting new people. They were bringing other people into their churches. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. We're just going to look really quickly at a few places here in Acts. Acts 2. Please nobody leave just yet. I I was joking about the two-hour sermon. That may be another way churches die, by the way. (laughs) Acts 2 and verse 41. Acts 2 and verse 41. After Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So you have 3,000 baptized in one day. And they continue in the apostles' teaching. So you have people who have committed, they believe in Jesus, but then that commitment is not just going to be, wow, I really felt bad after that really great sermon. I wanted to do whatever he said, and then I did it, and I went home, and I felt better. It was instead the beginning of a commitment. And this is the Jerusalem church. Its formation happens on this day, and there are lost people who now comprise that church because they're no longer lost. Turn the page to Acts 4. Acts 4 and verse 4. After Peter and John preach and they're arrested before it seems like they're able to see the fruits of their preaching, it says, Acts 4 and verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So they hear the word and they believe and the number keeps swelling. It is growing. It is certainly not dying. Turn a page over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. So Acts 8 begins with Saul persecuting the church and the, the Christians scattering. 
And it says in Acts 8 and verse 4, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they saw him and heard, the, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Down in verse 12, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Philip goes and preaches to them, Samaritans, and they are baptized after they believe. So the question is, where do these churches come from? It's pretty clear. They come from lost people becoming saved people, unbelievers who are taught. Now, I want to caution you. There are some things that we need to point out that are different about what we're reading in Acts and what we experience today. For example, all of these people were Jews, which means they shared a worldview. They shared a respect for God. They were committed to serving God. And they also believed that a Messiah was coming. And they were waiting for the Messiah. And when someone comes and says, hey, I'm completely on board with you, except I know who the Messiah is. That was a message that was readily accepted by these people. Also, these Christians are the only ones preaching this message. They are the only ones in town who would tell anything about Jesus. So, there's no division. There are no denominations. There are no internal divisions, no problems like that. Their message is completely unique. And it's also being preached for the first time. These people have never heard this before. So, what I am saying is, we should not expect New Testament-style results. 3,000 per sermon. However, we can follow the example of the New Testament church by taking the gospel to the lost. Verse 4 said, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, that may may feel overwhelming to us, but there is a principle in Scripture that I think should help, and it also helps answer our question. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. Paul says this to Timothy. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there is an exponential chain going on here. See, Timothy heard some things from Paul. And he heard them in the presence of many witnesses, which means there were a lot of other people there who also heard them from Paul. But now Timothy takes that message and he entrusts it to faithful men. And then they turn around and teach others also. This is the way the gospel is intended to work. That those who hear the word soon are able to teach the word. And that when we teach someone, they can in turn teach someone, and they can in turn teach someone. And so on and on the gospel spreads. And if you start looking at that as a chart, what you see is it's called exponential growth. If everyone teaches two, and all of those two teach two, and all of those two teach two, eventually the gospel spreads like wildfire. So I am not saying that we should expect 3,000 5,000, but there is an expectation that we will be putting forth the effort and God will give the increase as we do the work of teaching the lost. Show me a congregation that has died, and I strongly suspect that I can show you a congregation that has not been evangelizing. Now, first of all, that's important just from a numbers perspective. 
Do we really expect that a local church is going to survive long term if all we do is teach our children? Now, please don't diminish that. We spent the last several minutes talking about that. That's important, and I'm not trying to diminish that. But that's not the sum total of what it is to teach. To me, teaching our children is understood. It is teaching the lost that is a challenge and something we must step out of, out to do. But it's not just numbers. I want to suggest to you evangelism is important for a church because now we have faithful men. Did you notice that? We have faithful men who are able to teach. That means the church is getting stronger. If you've ever done much teaching of those who are lost, you know that there is a tremendous blessing in it for you. You know that you will never study as hard as when you're trying to study with someone. You know that you will get to the bottom of questions that you would previously ignore. You know that when you bring somebody to church, you pay attention to things that happen in church like you never have before. You hear everything that is said. You know, if we're just here by ourselves, we might just, oh yeah, well I didn't really hear what, he droned on for another 10 minutes. I didn't catch that part. But if somebody's here with you, every word, every note, everything, you're scrutinizing it, you're careful with it because you know you're trying to help someone understand. It changes you and it changes you for the better. And when we get new converts, it changes the church. It changes the church because now we have new perspectives. We have people with different kinds of problems than what we have. They talk in a different way. They come from a different background. They have something to bring and it makes the church fresher and stronger as we assimilate someone else into our group. We need that. All of that is to say, we need to be teaching those who are lost. I especially, I want to say this, sometimes we get so focused on ourselves and each other that we forget. And you know, when we focus on ourselves and each other, you know what we do? We start fighting. We start picking at each other. It's almost like a family that that forgets that there are other people in the world. So we fight and we pick her and we, we pick at each other. And then, you know, if somebody else were to attack someone in our family, suddenly we realize, oh, I don't hate these people. I love these people. In the same way, we get so focused on each other that we forget. Yet when we turn our perspective to evangelize, suddenly we remember those things are not the important things. The enemy is not us. The enemy is Satan. Turn to Acts 9. Acts 9, verse 31. Acts 9 and verse 31, it says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Notice that the church was multiplied. It is part of the blessing of the Lord as these churches follow Jesus. So churches die. Failure to pass on the faith to the next generation. Failure to teach the lost. And I'm going to say this third point. Uh, failure to remain faithful to Jesus. I want you to notice that verse we just read, Acts 9.31. Let's read it again. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. I want you to notice that Luke doesn't just mention numerical growth. It multiplied. He also talks about how they were doing. They had peace, and they were being built up. Those are spiritual markers of how things are going. It's one thing to say, well, we got a lot of people. It's another thing to say, we're growing. We're built up. We have peace. So, if those are marks of healthy churches, 
then the converse is also true. That failure to grow spiritually, failure to remain faithful to Jesus is a sign that a church is unhealthy. We might even say a church is dying. I want to take the rest of our time and be in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 is where we'll begin. Revelation. As I want to flesh out a little bit of what I mean by failure to remain faithful to Jesus, I want to think with you about some areas where this can play out and how that will affect how a local church survives. The first is this. When we talk about what kinds of unfaithfulness kill churches, the first, I would say, is insincere, half-hearted service. You see that in a couple of places here in Revelation. Revelation 2 and verse 4, as Jesus addresses the church at Ephesus. Revelation 2 and 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. So he says, you've abandoned the love you had at first. They were still doing the right things. And he makes that clear, verses 2 and 3. But they don't have the love they used to have. It's not going with the intensity it deserves. Turn with me to chapter 3, Revelation 3 and verse 1. It says, Revelation 3 and 1, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow. People think you're alive, but you're dead. Seems like you're doing well, but you're not. And of course... The church in Laodicea in verse 15 and 16 of Revelation 3, he talks about how you're neither cold nor hot, but you are lukewarm. And Jesus is furious with them about that. So what does it look like when we have insincere, half-hearted service? It means that we do the right things, but we're not sincere. We don't mean it. We keep the lights on, but we're going through the motions. We honor God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. Jesus says this kills churches. And while I think that's speaking spiritually, I also, think, I also think that's a thing that contributes to churches dying in a physical sense that we can observe. You know, it's like a tree that's dead on the inside, but you don't always see immediately how dead it is. Then slowly you start to notice, you know, the leaves here don't look so good or the bark starts chipping off. You know, you start noticing the signs of a deeper sickness inside. The interesting thing about this is that people can usually tell. Haven't you ever gone to a congregation and you said as you left, that place is just, just pretty dead? What do we mean? Well, we don't mean that they're doing wrong things, right? We mean lukewarm, have a name that they're alive but they're dead. We mean left their first love. We mean... People can see our insincerity, and they don't want to join the group. I don't want any part of that. No, thank you. And the attitude spreads that we're just here to go through the motions. We're just keeping up appearances. We're just trying to check all the boxes. And so the church dies. Second, sometimes we fail to remain faithful to Jesus because we get worn out by the difficulty. These passages, Revelation 2 and 3, speak about difficulty and the trouble associated with remaining faithful to Jesus. Look in Revelation 2 and verse 2. Revelation 2, 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. 
I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. So that's, that's awesome, and it's a commendation of the church at Ephesus. But I want you to notice how many times he says it's going to take patience and endurance and bearing up and struggling. Sometimes in these texts, it has to do with persecution for the faith, refusing to deny, even seeing their brethren killed. I want to say the pressures may change. I don't believe that we suffer in the same way that some of these churches suffered in terms of persecution. But the idea of pressure is constant and expected. In this scenario, we believe, but but life is hard. We get beat up by life. And we get discouraged. And we start doubting. We isolate ourselves. Sometimes we just stop coming to church. You know, maybe we don't come as often. Maybe we don't come at all. And we fill our time with other things. And the pain that we feel, you know, the hardship of this, we start to medicate with other things. We use food or we use substances or we use relationships or pleasure to medicate ourselves just so that we feel better because we're just worn out. I want you to think about, well, I know that that is an issue that is personal for each one of us. I want you to think about how that impacts local churches. If people observe us and what they see is, he's got problems and his faith isn't helping. He cannot overcome them by believing in Jesus. What will they conclude about Jesus? If I get worn out by the difficulty and others see it, why would they join me? Why would they want to come get worn out too? Might be easier just to stay away. And so churches die. Failure to remain faithful to Jesus in terms of false teaching and sin. Look in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 14. Revelation 2 and verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans really center around the idea of a teaching that justifies compromise. So we've got the world pressing us to do evil things, and we've got Jesus calling us to faithfulness, And somehow, Balaam comes along and says, why don't you do both? This is not that big a deal. Just compromise. Just give in on this point. And so we are taught, we are influenced to just countenance sin, just be okay with some sin. Sin is not that big a deal. We start to get bad ideas and listen to the wrong voices. And we feel the appeal of self-justification. Who here would not rather be told they're right than be told they're wrong? And so sin begins to creep in. And the false teaching that justifies it. So, Jesus says, those churches will begin to die. In fact, he says, I'll come and fight you with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says, I will kill those churches. Now, please understand, that does not mean that churches that compromise in terms of false teaching and sin start dwindling in number. Those churches usually swell in number. But there is a promise Jesus makes that he will defeat them. 
He says that in verse 22. He says that in verse 16. And that makes me wonder, if churches dying is not part of Jesus' judgment because of compromising his word, that's at least possible from reading this text. You're probably aware of the fact that false teaching and sin have corrupted a lot of churches throughout the centuries. And that it has made churches struggle. And I just want to point out that the forces of connection and influence that exist in a local church that make a church strong are the same forces that make a church vulnerable. Because false teaching can spread and a little leaven can leaven the whole lump. Failure to remain faithful to Jesus in terms of leadership failure. Chapter 2 and verse 20. Chapter 2 and verse 20 says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my service to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. You tolerate something. Now, I understand that's not strictly a leadership issue. I understand that there are other people who can tolerate besides just the leaders. But I am pointing out the fact that something is going on and no one's dealing with it. And God specifically gives that commission to the shepherds or elders in a local church. I want to show you how he does that. This is Acts 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he says to the elders at Ephesus, and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. There's a danger coming. And elders, your job is to care for the church and to defend them. That's your job. So... When leaders fail, churches die. Churches die because the leaders aren't watching or because the leaders won't lead or because the leaders won't protect or because the leaders aren't decisive. Or sometimes churches die because the leaders abuse their authority or because they drive people away. Those are leadership failures. They go, in my view, under the umbrella of failing to remain faithful to Jesus. So what it shows us is the need for balance in our leadership, especially in terms of what ideas and people leaders allow to influence the group. Who is here? What influence are they allowed to have? Those are leader questions. And when leaders fail, churches die. And the last thing I want to point out here is just division. I'm just going to show you this. This is not from Revelation. This is from Ephesians 4. With all humility and gentleness, Paul writes, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The idea of maintaining unity is, of course, an essential New Testament principle. I don't have the time to prove that to you, but I'm aware that you, you're probably aware of that. But when we divide, we have to look at it as a hindrance to the growth and stability of a local church. Several reasons. I mean, it's always hard to maintain unity long term. That's really true in any relationship. It's true in a marriage. There's work that has to be done, sacrifices that have to be made, an attitude that has to be present. But division damages us numerically, financially, but most of all, when we divide, it is tremendously disheartening and demotivating. We just don't want to go on. What's the point? It is so discouraging. But I want to say, churches don't die just because of division. What happens is, churches die because people are unable to work out their problems. Churches die 
Because the evil attitudes that cause those divisions continue to thrive and corrupt. Churches die because we don't get over the pain and hurt we've experienced in a division. So, we could probably go on and on. I hope you realize how big this question is. But I'm going to cut it off here, and I'm going to say this. I want to answer this question in a different way. I think if I, if I were to answer this question with just one thing, I would start with a failure to remain faithful to Jesus. That is, when we divide and we bicker and we show jealousy and anger and we refuse to forgive, when we have weak, immature leaders and when we allow just anyone and anything to come in, and when we get really tired and discouraged, and then when we end up serving the Lord without any real passion, we are dead. But you know what happens then? What what does that do to evangelism? I mean, how likely are we to convince somebody to jump on board a sinking ship? How likely are we to convince somebody to accept the life-changing gospel when they can look at us and say, well, this hasn't changed your life. And then, if that's the case with unbelievers, what happens with our kids? Our kids who look at us and they say, "Uh, this is not real for you. I am certainly not going to follow it. It just comes across as hypocrisy to them. So, that's not to say that people couldn't still come to faith in Jesus. It's not to say that God couldn't in some ways use a church where there were people who were struggling with some of these things. It is to say that if people were to come to Christ, it would be in spite of us instead of because of us. So, I want to close by just asking the question, what can we do? How can we ensure that Fairview won't be a dead church? I just want to give you four quick things. First, sincerely follow Jesus yourself. This starts with each one of us. The most important thing you could possibly do for this congregation is serve the Lord personally. You do it. You be sincere. You be forgiving. You grow in Christ. You read the scripture. You do what you can do. I will also say that is also the single most important thing you can do for your children so that they see no matter what you say that they see what your life says. I will also say that is the single most important thing you could do to teach the lost. So that no matter when you decide to open your mouth and speak to someone about Jesus, they already know that you really follow Jesus. And really, all of the rest of it hinges on this idea that I am going to sincerely follow Jesus. So what do I mean by that? I mean a vibrant passion for Jesus. Active humility. Real love. Willingness to admit when you're wrong. A conviction that sin is wrong and that I am guilty of it. Courage to live out of step with the world. Follow the Lord. Do that. And it will go a long way toward ensuring that Fairview will continue to thrive. We can commit to stay together and to follow our elders. You know, we're going to get to know each other better and better. And that's going to make staying together easy in some ways and hard in some ways. We need to know each other, right? We need to get closer. But as we get closer and get to know each other better, sometimes sometimes we annoy each other. Sometimes we find things we don't like. And so we commit to staying together. We will be together. I will not run from you. 
I'm not leaving at the first sign of trouble or difficulty or unpleasantness or frustration. I'm not going to hide myself from you. We will stay together. We're going to work together. And as we do that, we agree together to submit to the leadership of our elders. We're going to follow them. Our elders are not perfect men, but our elders are godly, qualified men. And they are worthy of our respect and our submission. And so we're going to go where they lead us. And we're going to do it together. And we're not going to run away because we might have a problem. That's how we make this a strong church. That we're going to do our best to work through our questions and issues. And we're going to trust our leaders to lead us. Now to our elders, that means we're counting on you to lead us closer to Jesus. Because we're going to follow you. What can we do? We can work to convert the lost. Can I say something about this? This is going on in a really powerful way with one part of our congregation. I see it all the time. It is our young people. Our young people constantly bring their friends to services. I don't know how much you notice. I don't know all those kids. I'm not saying they're all lost. I don't know that. I am saying, that is awesome. Do you know why it's awesome? It's awesome because that means that your friends, young people, don't, when you say, come to church with me, they don't say, you go to church? It's who you are. It's natural. It's a reflection of their respect for you. And I think that's great. And I think we need to encourage that and meet those young people, of course, and welcome them. And we need to celebrate the fact that our young people have the courage to reach out. In fact, it seems to me that that's what we all need to be doing. And we're being taught a lesson by those among us who are youngest. So what we're saying here is, this is such a part of our life that it's natural for these conversations to come up and invitations to be given and for us to express our faith and hope. But I am not saying that you and I all need to get together and start doing foreign missions. That's great if we want to. I'm saying we can talk to people we know. And we can start that process of working to help and save those who need Jesus. And finally, we can teach our kids. Because I'm living it. I'm living it at home. I'm living it everywhere else. We bring our kids into our identity. This is who we are. We explain and we guide and we correct. We form character and we teach. I can't control whether my children come to believe in Jesus. That is out of my hands. But I can teach them to know the Lord, and I can lead the horse to water, and I can feed him salt to make him thirsty. I can do all I can so that they will make the decisions that I know are best for them. And I also want to say, we need to be doing that with one another's kids we have opportunities every time we meet to encourage each other, to be um, mentors, to be positive influences in the lives of other people's children. Because there are times, as we all know, where our kids don't listen to their parents as much as they might listen to others. So who better to listen to than other Christians? Let's take on that role and say that they are our kids and that we're going to try to raise them to know the Lord. I don't know what the future holds for this congregation. 
I don't know if this congregation is still going to be here in 100 years. I don't know if Little Rock is going to be here in 100 years. I don't know if the United States is going to be here in 100 years. I don't know any of that. Here's what I know. If we live for Jesus and we spread his word, this church will not die an unnatural death. Would you pray with me about it? Our Father, we thank you so much for this good time that we've had together to think through what we're doing here and the work that we're trying to do for you. And as we try to grow closer together and be a community of people who are devoted to you, we ask, Father, that you will bless us. We ask that you will work with us. We pray, Father, for that sincere commitment in each one of us. We pray, Father, that you'll continue to work in us to help us grow so that we can be stronger as disciples individually and so that we can work together and have those joints and ligaments that give strength to your body. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray for our leaders. I pray that you'll give them wisdom and discernment to know what's best for this group. I pray for a spirit of submission and kindness and gentleness as we work together. Thank you so much, Father, for giving us a family. I pray that you'll help us to work through those things in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the invitation. This is a time that we set aside for those who don't know the Lord to come and to let that need be known that you are ready to give your life over to him. So if there's someone here who needs to be baptized into Christ and have their sins washed away, or if there's any need that you have, we invite you to come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.